Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone again. For those of you who don't know me, I uh, interned with Pastor Brad this past year during my senior year of Cornerstone, so I'm thankful to be back, thankful to see everyone, and just keep Pastor Brad and Pastor Nick and the youth group in your prayers as they are down in Florida. If you would with me, go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. So Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, did you ever have a role model growing up? Was there someone in your life that you wanted to become? Maybe you wanted to mimic them. You wanted to adopt their characteristics or even do the things they did. When you think of the icons of today's world, what names might come to mind? You may think of Tom Brady or LeBron James or Lionel Messi for the soccer fans, football. If you're a little little older, those names might be Joe Montana, Pistol Pete, Larry Bird. Perhaps it's Taylor Swift, Morgan Wallen, The Beatles, or some other musician that I don't really listen to. There is often someone in our lives that we want to become. Perhaps it's out of a prideful hope of personal gain. It's here that we can sacrifice who we are for someone who we are not supposed to be. But perhaps following a person isn't always a bad thing. Maybe you look up to, say, your mother or your father or a close friend who exemplifies a fulfilled life. In certain ways, following someone may not be a bad thing if it's kept in check. I myself was no different growing up. In fact, I would say I had several role models at various times. Uh, At one point, I was convinced I was going to play in the NFL after watching The Blind Side and the story of Michael Ower. At other times, and in a lot of ways still am, inspired by, say, the warriors of America's past and wanted to become a hero like Lieutenant Richard Winters or Marion Fox. But one person who specifically stuck out to me as my sort of role model, my mentor growing up, would be my grandfather, my mother's father. And so many of the things that he was about are the things that I wanted to take on, his love for guns and his little cap gun collection and uh, just his joy in old Western movies and all these little things. The thing about my grandfather, though, is that he was a pastor. And the one thing I never wanted to mimic from him is being a pastor. So it's kind of ironic that here I stand, and this is what I'm doing when my family growing up teased me, hey, you're going to be like Grandpa. You're going to be a pastor. You're going to preach. You talk way too much. And here I am. So that's kind of ironic. But what I'm getting at is that most people don't realize that we are all followers in life. It's really a question of who or what is the object of our following. We're often conformed to the very thing that is on the forefront of our minds, our goals, or the person that we want to become. 
Is that thing, that goal, that following for you to become more like Christ? Do you desire the very things Christ did to grow closer to him, even when it involves sacrifice or suffering in taking up your cross? I'm convinced there's no greater sacrifice in this life than the life that seeks Christ earnestly to become conformed to his image. And as Christ demonstrated, the road of his following is often paved by self-denial and the laying aside of one's own interests. Christ, who even himself did not forego limiting himself and suffering for us, took up his cross, and the very hands that held the stars were then sentenced to wear our scars. The one who shed his blood for us, are we willing to give the first drop of ours for him? So this morning I want to talk about three principles of what it means to follow Christ in taking up your cross. But before we do that, would you please bow your heads with me as we look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the freedom to come and to gather here and to be willing to hear you in your word. God, we thank you for Christ, for not just the example that he said of taking up the cross, but also what he did through that, making a relationship possible. God, I pray for that. I pray for everybody here that they might get right with you this morning in their relationship, or if they don't have one, that they would be willing to come to you and to accept that. God, be with us this morning. Keep your word on our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, the first thing, the first theme that you'll see that Jesus is talking about here is that to follow Christ is ultimately to deny oneself. If you want to follow Christ, the first thing you're going to have to do is deny yourself. I think one of the great lies about faith is that people believe that you can become born again, that you can choose to follow Christ, and that your life is no different. There's no reflection of following Christ. But Jesus says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself. And the first thing is we have to be willing to follow in the first place. Verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You see, the problem is too often, I I don't know that a lot of people are really wanting to be all in with Christ. A lot of times people don't actually have the desire to follow Christ. It's easier to just maybe go through the motions or go to church on Sundays or do the things that look good. But to have a desire for Christ is to be willing to do what Christ did. I see on the wall over here we have a new sign that says, Come follow me. The Gospel of Mark, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, over and over, every time there's a new disciple that Jesus is calling out, the two words that he always gives is follow me. And just at those two words, all 12 of the disciples in the gospel were willing to drop everything. They dropped their family, they dropped their jobs, they dropped their source of income, they gave up everything to be willing to follow Christ. We have to be all in if we are going to choose to follow Christ. There's no dipping your foot in or going halfway There's no sitting on the fence or being somewhat undetermined if you want to follow Christ or not. Satan owns the fence. There is no sitting on the fence. You're either all in or you're all out. One of the things I think about in just keeping on the sports track here, I think about my high school. When I was in high school, my little school called Paloma, Westphalia, they did exceptionally well in just about every sport. 
And people were always confused on how, you know, PW makes it to the state finals, how they won football state finals and basketball and all these different sports. And the reality is if you sat in on those locker rooms, if you heard what all of the kids were about, they were all in to what they were doing. There was no going halfway. There was no kind of putting in some effort and just hoping it produces something. It was being all in to what they were about. And that is what produced change for them. In the Greek here, the word anyone desires might be translated as a willingness to come. And it's calling distinctly to mind the idea that we have to have the same objectives, goals, desires. Do your desires, your objectives align with Christ? If we desire to follow him, they should. Are you willing to lay down everything? Are you willing to suffer and take up your cross even when it means to do what Christ did and be obedient unto death, death of the self? Look, it's not follow your heart, right? Society wants to tell us, hey, love yourself, follow your heart. And I'm convinced that there's not been anything more damaging to this generation than to hear things like, hey, follow your heart. Just love yourself a little more. The reality is Christ doesn't want us to follow our heart. He wants us to follow him. The edifying principle of Christianity has never been success. It's been sacrifice. It's not what you're getting out of something. It's what you're giving up for him. Even Christ himself humbled himself to become a man. Speak of denial. I think Christ knew exactly what it meant to deny oneself. Philippians 2, 6 and 7 who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. God himself becoming man, limiting himself, willing to deny himself, to deny the very rights that he had over creation to come in the form of a servant. Speak of somebody who knows what it means to give up everything to follow someone that is the, the will of his father. Are we willing to do the same. Secondly, we have to count the cost of discipleship. I don't think a lot of people really sit down and think about what it means to be a disciple of Christ, just how much that really costs you. I don't know that sometimes the apostles knew what they were getting into themselves when they were willing to lay down everything. But verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We have to count the cost of discipleship. It's something that's not natural. It's not in our nature to want to give up things of our own, to be willing to, be willing to lay our own lives down. If you look at this passage in context, right before this in chapter 16, Jesus is predicting his death, and Peter says, hey, no, God, far be it from that. We're going to save you. We're not going to let you die. And Jesus says, hey, get behind me, Satan. And then he goes into this discourse here saying, hey, look, not only should you not be wanting to spare your own life, you should be so far from it that you should deny yourself. And that's exactly what Christ did. Denial of the self, the cost of discipleship, it's a continued act of self-denial. It's obedience. It's discipline. It's something that's not necessarily just this one-time decision that we don't work out. It's something that we have to continually do every day to bring ourselves before God, to be willing to be obedient and disciplined every day. I like to think that self-denial, if there was an entrance exam into Christ's school, it probably wouldn't be a theology exam. We'd probably all fail that anyways. But I would think that the, the entrance exam into a school of Christ is often self-denial. 
Self-denial is often the first thing we learn when we become a Christian. We have to learn how to deny ourselves for God, for others, and even for ourselves to limit the things that are actually harmful for us. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, narrow is the way for the one who is willing to deny himself and take up his cross. And the more I was thinking about this, the more I realized, I think this is the number one stumbling block to why people don't come to Christ. They're not willing to lay themselves down. I've had enough conversations with people. You can get in these intellectual conversations with people about why they don't believe in Jesus or why they don't think Jesus was the Messiah or whatever it may be. They might say, oh, hey, there's no evidence for that. But I think if you were to really press into the question and ask them, well, what evidence is it that you have that you're living for? I think you would often find that it's not that there's not evidence for Christ. It's that people don't really want to give their lives up to follow him. They don't want to deny themselves. It's not a lack of evidence. It's that people don't want to take up their cross to give up everything they have to follow him. The cost is too high for people. And so if we're going to follow Christ, we have to count the cost of discipleship. Look, carrying the cross in ancient days was a sign of death. If you saw somebody carrying their cross, they were already dead. They were already sentenced. There was no getting out. And so when we make the decision to be with Christ, to follow Christ, we have to accept the cost that we are already dead to this world, that we've already given up everything. Our fate is already sealed. Matthew Henry says, crosses are the common lot of God's children, and how true that is. Every person who chooses to follow Christ has an individual cross, their own special duty or burden. How ought we are to think that maybe we could carry somebody else's cross better than our own? Or we think that, hey, look at my load and how difficult this cross is to carry compared to someone else. But the reality is each one of us has to take up our own cross through God's help it is possible to bear our burdens. Take your cross and improve upon it. It's not just something that you're forced to do or that you just have to do and just have to get through it. There are ways in which Christ can make the suffering a blessing. There is no suffering in this life that is meaningless, and I am convinced of that. But thirdly here, we should examine the sincerity of our following. Verse 25 for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And here lies the great paradox of the Christian faith. The sincerity of following Christ is that you're willing to lose your life for him. That you're willing to lay everything down. There is no gaining life without the cross, without what Christ did. And so often, many people look to save themselves, to save their lives, by finding some sort of mundane joy through their everyday experiences, through what they can scrape together in this life. But the reality is that all of us have a God-shaped hole in our lives. Every single one of us have this hole in our heart that we're trying to fill with things. And if we choose to not follow Christ, we're going to choose to fill those things with the world. But Trying to save our life through the world is exactly what's actually killing our lives. But losing our life to the world 
is what will save it. Fill that God-shaped hole in your heart with something else. Not seeking to exploit the cross is something I think that is also important when we think about the sincerity of our following. How often maybe people want to go in between. It's not that they're not believing in Christ. It's not that they don't totally agree with the world. But how often do we see this sort of in-between of people who want to also exploit the cross? They want to use the cross to get something out of it. We think about the prosperity gospel or things that teach that Jesus will just give you everything you want, and he's there for sort of your taking more so than to have a genuine relationship. But the whole point of this passage is Jesus is giving this sort of imagery, this Roman imagery of somebody who has to take up their cross. And in these days, these crosses weighed like three, 400 pounds. They weren't light things to carry. And Roman soldiers, when you were sentenced to be crucified, would intentionally set the cross far away from where you were going to be crucified just to get that little extra pain out of you for you to have to pick up that cross and carry it with you. But the imagery that Jesus is calling to mind is that, hey, the way your cross is laid is something that's already been set before you. The ordination of your cross is something that God has already set out before you. Our crosses have been divinely set out just as Christ's was, and they should be accommodated for. We should take our crosses as they come in life. The sincerity of our following is letting God meet us where we're at. It's not maybe adding crosses to ourselves as maybe a sort of pride or pity or whatever that may be. It's accepting the crosses that Christ has laid out for our lives and enduring them sincerely. And so I ask you, what's your motivation with the cross? What is it? Are you trying to use Jesus for something? Are you trying to get something out of him? Or are you taking Christ for who he is and being willing to endure the things that he has laid out for you? Secondly here, the second theme is that to follow Christ is to value the soul. If you truly value your soul, if you truly value life, you would be wise to listen to what Jesus has to say here. And that is namely that the winning of the world is the losing of the soul. To win the world is to lose the soul. Verse 26, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so I urge you, don't neglect a spiritual health for a physical health or a worldly well-being. The word for soul here in this verse is actually the exact word that's used in Genesis 2-7 in the Greek Old Testament, which means life. When it says God breathed into man, breathed the breath of life into man, it's the same word here calling distinct attention to the fact that the soul is life and that no matter what a man has, if he loses his soul, his life, it's worthless anyways. If you had everything in the world, but you were dead in the grave, what, you, what could you do with it anyways? It's worthless. To gain the whole world, but to forfeit your eternity is to have nothing at all anyways. You can't take it with you. You're not taking your wealth with you. Ecclesiastes 2.19 says, And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish? Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, which I have poured my effort into under the sun. This too is meaningless. All of the wealth that you have, everything you've accumulated, is going to be left to someone else anyways. You can't take it with you. And so to gain the world is to 
actually lose everything. An eternal death cannot be compensated by even all the temporal things of this world. There is nothing in this world that is going to be able to be an exchange rate for what you can have in your soul through Christ. It's important to call distinct attention to the fact that, yes, a soul can be lost, that a soul is lost, and it's the sinner's own losing. Jesus says he can lose his own soul. This is something I think is really important, something that maybe we want to gloss over. I've been preaching at a few small little churches, and I, one of the things that I'm just very wary of is how often we want to skip over the fact that, yes, souls can be lost. And, yes, there is wrath. There is condemnation for those who don't choose to follow Christ. And Jesus, again, is calling clear attention to the fact, hey, if you choose the world, you forfeit your soul. So be careful with the exchange rate here. Don't neglect your spiritual health for the things of this world. I find it interesting that at the same time, Jesus doesn't really give a list of do's or don'ts here. He doesn't really give you a full list of what it means to be spiritually healthy or how to not choose the world. It's not that he's giving us a, a clear di- you know, direction here, but the general thing is it takes independent time to know God, to know his desires. If you want to be spiritually healthy, just go to the manual. Learn about what Christ has for you. But the general sense here is that, hey, to, to love the world is really the losing of the sinner. First John says, if a man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that's what Jesus is calling attention to. Secondly, we should consider the price that was paid for our souls. To to value our souls is to consider what price was actually paid for them. Verse 26, again, second part of the verse. What profit is it to man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, I think Jesus knows exactly what someone would give in exchange for the soul. Because Jesus gave himself as the exchange for the soul. He knows what a soul is worth because he died to redeem them. He knows what our souls are worth. And just understand that one soul to Christ is worth more than the whole world to him anyways. Matthew 10, 29-31, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. With Pastor Brad, that's pretty easy to count. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. One soul to Christ is worth more than the entire world to him. He knows the value of a soul. He came to die for them. If you were to put on your soul versus all the things of the world, everything you could ever want to desire on a scale, if you were to weigh the two out, that soul would just drop the scale and it would be no contest. Christ took on a gruesome punishment. He knew what the exchange rate was. He who knew no sin became sin, and the wrath of God was poured out upon him. He died a gruesome death, but he also lived a life of suffering and taking up his own cross to display the value of souls and the relationship with God. He was obedient even through life. Look, there's no exchange rate for our souls outside of that. There's no exchange other than what Christ already did for you. There's no way that when a soul is lost, and when it's lost when you have died or are in the grave, it's lost forever. What can a man give in exchange? There's nothing that can be exchanged for the soul outside of what Christ has already taken upon himself. 
And the third theme that we see is that to follow Christ is to dwell in hope. You may say, hey, this sounds like a lot of loss and not much gain. This sounds like a lot of laying things down. But I can promise you that on the authority of God's word right here, that the Christian life will be gain. That it might seem like loss, and it is loss right now, but to lay it down for something greater, and that is namely the glory of Christ. We can have hope in the glory of Christ. Verse 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Don't be discouraged by the humiliation of the faith. How easy it is to be discouraged when it takes the time to stand up for Christ, or when Christ stood up as well and was killed for it. It's maybe discouraging, and it would be discouraging for the disciples to look on the suffering Christ. When Jesus was killed, and before they had seen him risen, what does the Gospel of John say they were doing? They were back to being fishermen. They had gone back to what they were doing beforehand. And to see Christ suffer was discouraging to them. In fact, if Christ only suffered and he never rose again, there would be no point in following him, would there? But Christ is risen and Christ will come back in glory. Don't just see the suffering Christ. Don't just mimic the suffering that Christ laid out for us, but also see the captain of our salvation, the glorified, the risen one. We can have hope that we will be with Christ in glory as well. One of the things is in a Roman Catholic church, I don't know if you've ever been in a Roman Catholic church, but on the front, almost every single Catholic church has a crucified Christ, not a risen Christ, and sure, it's true to say that the, the example that Christ set out in terms of being obedient and suffering is an example that we should follow, but it doesn't end there. Christ also rose from the grave, and he became glorified with God at the right hand of his throne. And we too can as well, if we're willing to follow. Look, Jesus accepts himself. He says, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father. It's kind of a contradictory thing if you think about what, uh, what he's saying here. The Son of Man is a pretty humbled word to describe himself. In fact, it was often used as an insult to say, hey, the Son of Man, you are lower than the man. But the reality is Christ was humbled at one point, but he will come back in glory again, and we can look forward to that. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. It's not pointless suffering. It may seem in the moment, as if it's something that is hard to make sense of. But Christ will come in, in glory, and we can reign with him as well. Also understand that there will be no work left hidden when that happens, when that day comes. Verse 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward each according to his works. We often think that we can maybe hide some things from God or from each other. Where did Adam and Eve go when they sinned? They went and hid from God. But the reality is that when Christ comes back in glory, all of the suffering will be made right. Everything that has ever happened will be rewarded back in an infinitely more exchanged way than what this world can exchange. God will give back infinitely 
greater punishments or rewards based on what you chose to do in this life. We think we're clever enough to hide our sin. We think we're clever enough that God isn't going to work us out, but God will snuff you out. And if you are in Christ, God will work you out. I think Pastor Brad made the allusion once to uh, a tractor part that isn't shaped correctly. And sometimes from the factory, they don't come right, and you just have to pound it into place. I was thinking about that not too long ago. My dad and I were working on a spindle arm on this axle for his tractor, and we just, it, it wouldn't fit. We just had to pound it into place. It wasn't shaped right. And how God may have to do that with us when we just don't want to fit where we're supposed to, and God has to pound us into place. No work will be left hidden. God will have his way with you. It's a matter if you choose to follow him and go with him now or not. All things will be revealed in an eternal sense. There will be nothing left hidden. Luke 8, 17, For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. There will be no court of appeals. There will be no resisting this, this revelation. The verdict will be final. And so that's why I urge you to get right with Christ now, to choose to take up your cross and follow Christ now. Until then, obviously good and evil will remain as the rewarding of men has been deferred until that day. People say, well, what's the point in following Christ when there's evil in the world and, you know, the good people suffer? The reality is that judgment has been deferred until that day, and it's your choice to get right with God now before it's too late. There, there can be no double-sided story in the Christian life. There is no living in outward appeal for Christ and an inwardly sinning and inwardly hiding from Christ. There is no Jesus and to your life. There is no choosing Jesus here and wanting to add the things of the world. You're either all in or you're all out. And there's only two types of people in this world, those who are dead in sin and those who are dead to sin. And so which cross are you carrying? One that's going to send you to an eternal death or one that says you've already died to sin and you will be raised with Christ? Thirdly here, see that the sufferings of taking up our crosses are not eternal. Verse 28, Assuredly I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And obviously the context here is Jesus is talking about, hey, there will be people who see me die and be risen from the grave, and I will send my spirit into the church, and I will have a kingdom. Granted, it's a spiritual kingdom. The reality is he's calling to the attention to the fact that, hey, there will be a point where there is no death. I do have a kingdom, and that kingdom will come back. And the people in this day were seeing a spiritual kingdom that Christ had brought about and raising from the dead and going to be seated with the Father. But there will be a day where Christ comes back with his physical kingdom. And our suffering until that point is not meaningless. When you think about the church in history, the church was handed down through generations of martyrs' blood. The church was given to us through suffering. The church wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the suffering of the martyrs' blood. It's doing something. The suffering is doing something greater because of it. And to give up the temporal loss will be gain, even if we can't see it now. We may lose in this life for Christ, but we won't be losers in Christ in the next life. The paradox of losing is actually gaining. 
When you plant a seed, it's dead, it's buried in the ground, but that seed becomes something. And so to give up the seed of this life now is to grow something in the next. And that's my encouragement to you that there were those standing with Christ who weren't going to see death until his kingdom came. And we too are also called to become a part of that kingdom. Be encouraged that the trials of this life are only mediatory. They're only a mediary thing until Christ comes back. And it's not something that we need to dwell in as this loss of our life. It's not an eternal thing. And that's my encouragement to you, that the sufferings of this life are not eternal, that we can choose to deny ourselves to take up our cross and follow him in hopes of something greater. Look, to follow Christ is to deny oneself. Yes, there is actual sacrifice to this life. There is actually giving something up. And yes, we have to count the cost of discipleship. And yes, it is a difficult thing to follow Christ and be willing to lay everything down. But that laying down is not eternal. Christ will come back and Christ will reward everything according to what, it's, what has been done. And that's my encouragement to you. Would you bow your heads with me as we look to God in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that through Christ coming and taking up his cross, that a relationship is possible, that Christ has set the way for us. The way has been paved for us. And yes, that way at times is difficult, and narrow is the path, and few find it. But God, I just pray that you would work on our hearts and be willing to encourage us to pursue that path to take up our crosses now, to be willing to endure the suffering now in hopes of something greater, that the suffering in itself isn't just doing nothing. It's doing something even if we can't see it. God, be with us. Help us to do these things. We can't do them on our own. We can't take up our cross on our own. It takes you. It takes your indwelling. And God, I pray that you would stamp that onto our lives and make us aware of what you're doing in our lives and give us the encouragement to continue on. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.